Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I recently had a patient that came into my care. Uh, This was a woman who was in her 80s. She presented because she was having some issues with bladder control. She was told that this was related to a urinary tract infection. And so she was given a course of antibiotics. And after, not surprisingly, the antibiotics didn't do anything to fix her bladder control issues, what happened next was uh, the sad part. And that was that she kept getting referred to different physicians They kept prescribing her more and more antibiotics because of a supposed bladder infection. And then one thing led to another. And eventually when she actually did get a bladder infection several months down the road, the bacteria that caused the infection was so incredibly resistant to antibiotics that there was virtually nothing that we could give this woman that would help. And we had to use antibiotics that are old and antibiotics that are more difficult to work with and antibiotics that have a lot more side effects. The reason I'm telling you that story today is that's where today's podcast comes in. We're going to be talking about infectious diseases, and one of the big topics of infectious disease right now is antibiotic resistance. Hello, and welcome to the Beaumont House Call Podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin. And I'm Dr. Asha Shah Jahan. We're just two doctors who want to help you and your families live healthier lives. A question that I often get asked when I go to cocktail parties is, okay, you're infectious disease, what does that mean, what do you do? And I love this question because um, in spite of doing this for 10 years, I still don't have a very perfect answer for it. Um, But it means I get to ramble on a little bit and try not to make people's eyes slowly roll back into their head when I explain (laughs) what I do. Um, So to, to make a kind of long story as short as I possibly can, an infectious disease doctor is a medical doctor. Uh, that treats a lot of different infections. Usually we work in hospitals and other what we call acute care settings, uh, but we also can work in clinics and have outpatient offices where we see patients. A lot of us also work in sort of a more administrative capacity, which is that we, uh, we work to make sure that infection rates uh, are monitored and controlled. We make sure that people wash their hands when they're supposed to. We make sure that antibiotics are used appropriately whenever we can. We make sure that surgeons are using proper uh, sterile surgical technique, uh, and so on and so on. If you hadn't already figured it out, um, I'm an ID doctor that works for Beaumont. I'm also a lifelong Michigan resident. I went to medical school at Michigan State. I did an internal medicine residency after medical school finished, so I am a fully licensed, board-certified internal medicine physician. But in addition to that, I did an extra two years of training in infectious disease at Beaumont Royal Oak. After that, I passed the necessary exam. Um, my certification exam in infectious disease, and I've been practicing with Beaumont ever since. So as an infectious disease doc, I've got a couple questions for you. Okay. So last year, it was my bachelorette party, and I was so gung-ho about going to Mexico. You know, the sun, the beaches, I wanted some carne asada, some el pastor. Um, But majority of my friends were childbearing age, and they were all kind of worried about, you know, eventually getting pregnant soon and whatnot. And they all freaked out about Zika. So we ended up not going to Mexico, and I was really upset about that, and we ended up settling for Florida. But by the time we got to Florida, Zika was already there, too. So, you know, no worries. None of us ended up getting Zika. But my biggest question to you is, Zika, what's up? Is it still an issue, and should we still be worried about going to places that have Zika? So Zika is still a thing, uh, for sure. So it's it's less of a thing now than it was, say, 2017. So this is, let me take a, a little bitty step back. 
this is another thing that's really interesting about infectious disease. It's that the landscape is constantly changing. So every year or every couple years, there's a thing that comes up that sort of captures everyone's attention. A few years ago, it was Ebola. Last year, it was Zika. This year, there's all kinds of other stuff that's going around that we can talk about. But to your question about Zika, yes, it is still a thing. Now, when I say it's not as much of a thing, what I mean is that we're not seeing as much Zika in Florida and in Texas where we were getting some transmission in 2017. For people that don't know what Zika is, this would be a good time for me to explain. Zika is a, is a viral infection that's spread by a certain type of mosquito. That mosquito primarily lives in warm climates, so around the equator, but it can also live in southern parts of the United States. And um, it spreads this infection, which to a normal healthy person, Zika virus infection is really no big deal. You might feel sick for a few days, it might kind of feel like the flu, or you might not have any symptoms at all. A lot of people don't even know that they get it. Okay. But where it's a real issue is for um, pregnant women, because women that are pregnant, if they get Zika, it can actually cause pretty significant birth defects. Um, it causes a very specific birth defect uh, called microcephaly, um, and it's most problematic when the pregnant woman is infected in the early part of the pregnancy. So, so what about if you are not pregnant yet, but you are in the family planning stage and you're thinking about it? Like my friends, we were all like, none of them were pregnant, Yes, but they were sort of thinking about it. Exactly. So that's where a lot of the recommendations from the CDC came through where, okay, it's not really just pregnant women that are problematic. It's also people that are around that window of hey, I could become pregnant, or hey, I'm thinking about becoming pregnant, because getting that infection, it can actually stay active in the body for a period of time. And if you are not pregnant when you become infected, but become pregnant shortly after that, um, the virus can still cause birth defects. The other issue is with men. So with men who get Zika, um, Obviously, a man's not going to become pregnant, so that's not a big deal. But the virus can um, can actually live in the sperm of the man, and it can be it can be spread to his partner, and so therefore, there's always the risk then that that uh, a partner could become infected, and that could lead to birth defects. Now, this is something that some of the recent science is coming out. Uh, the CDC, and, and actually there was a study that was just published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine that talks about how we've probably overdone it with some of these recommendations. The, the recommendation that came out in 2017 was that a man who is infected with Zika should wait up to six months oh, before wow. considering, you know, conceiving a child. Now they're saying that's probably overdoing it. It's probably much less than that. We don't know exactly for sure how much less but it's probably somewhere in the one to three month window of time. So, And would that be the same for women too? It is. So yeah, that, so it, we're kind of retooling these recommendations, or I should say the CDC is retooling these recommendations a little bit to whittle down that, that infection window so that it's a shorter period of time. So we're, we're easing up on the travelers um, in terms of you know, what their pregnancy plans might be in a shorter window of time. And then are they still testing for it? Yes, so there is still testing that's happening. Uh, the, the testing is pretty heavily monitored. So, like for example, if you if you went to Mexico and uh, you you got bitten by one of these mosquitoes that carry Zika, 
you couldn't really just come home and say, hey, I want to be tested for Zika. We're really trying to narrow the testing down to very specific high-risk populations. So that's women who are pregnant Got it. or are in the planning stages of pregnancy, likewise with men, or people who actively have symptoms of infection. So it's a pretty limited group of people that we're actually testing. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, Zika's still there, but not as hot of an issue as it used to be. Correct. But let me tell you this. So in my office... I've been getting more and more people that are freaking out because they have diarrhea or they ate at a restaurant that had a hepatitis A outbreak. Yep. So tell me about hepatitis A and, you know, what can be done about that? How do you get that? And should we be vaccinated? Sure. So hep A is, uh, that's the big one this year. So like I said, there was things that happen or come around about every year. Hep A is the, is the big one this year. So in Southeast Michigan right now, in case you didn't know, we're in the middle of this pretty widespread hepatitis A outbreak. What's interesting about this particular outbreak is that we don't exactly know how it started. And the reason we don't exactly know how it started is because hepatitis A is one of those unique infections that can be really difficult to trace. So if you get hepatitis A today, for example, let's say you go to a restaurant and you eat some food that's infected or contaminated, you will probably not get any symptoms for up to a month after that infection happens, right? So the reason that's problematic is because when the health department is doing their investigations to try to figure out where this infection came from, they're really asking people not about where you ate last week or where you ate in the last few days. They're trying to pin down a restaurant that you may have been to one to two months ago. If you're anything like me, you probably don't even remember what you had for breakfast two days ago. So that can be a big difficulty as far as tracking this infection down. So would you say if it comes out in the news that a certain restaurant has an hepatitis A exposure mm-hmm. or outbreak, and you know you've eaten there, but you're not really sure, should they, what should they do? Come to my, the family doctor's office? and? Yep. So as a matter of fact, that's exactly what we recommend happens. So what, what people are doing now is they're, they're turning on the news. They're, they're seeing that such and such restaurant has been implicated in another hepatitis A outbreak or, up, or a scare. They don't have any symptoms themselves. They feel fine. So that's an opportunity for them to then go to their doctors. Now, what is the doctor going to do? The doctor is going to probably run some basic tests, some blood tests to see if A, if they already have hepatitis A or have contracted it, or B, if they don't. And if they're in a a particular window, if they're within an early enough period of time, say within a couple weeks, what we can do then is we can vaccinate the person, which will decrease their chances of being able to get hepatitis A. Okay, vaccinate. Uh, That brings me to a whole other point. So I'm struggling Uh, with this. This is doc to doc, okay? And talking to you about what's going on in my clinic. And I'm getting more and more people that just don't want to be vaccinated. And, you know, hepatitis A is one thing. I think people are a little bit more willing because they're worried about, um, you know, getting an infectious disease. Mm-hmm. But it's odd to me that there's so many parents that bring bring their children for their well visit, but none of them want to get vaccinated or they refuse vaccinations and they're not concerned about these diseases. So, I mean, talk to me a little bit about vaccines and, you know, why are people so scared and what was your advice for them? So that loud, audible groan that I gave <laughs> right before you asked me about vaccines was because I knew that you were going to ask me about vaccines. <laughs> of course, everyone um, asks you about I, vaccines. It, they do. Actually, that's a, that's a perfect question. I'm glad we're talking about this. Um, people ask me all the time about vaccines. It's one of my probably big three questions that I get asked the most by friends, you know, patients, families, et cetera. But 
The fact that we're still asking questions about whether vaccines are a good idea or not, to me, demonstrates a real scientific failure on our parts as physicians and, and I think really on the medical community at large. Because if there's anything in the last century or two centuries of medicine that has really shown to be effective at eradicating disease more than anything else, better than penicillin, better than aspirin, is really vaccines. Um, but the, the thing that goes along with vaccines since the early days of vaccines is vaccine controversy. Um, and the issue here is that when, when you have a, a big disease, a big bad disease that's making its way through the public's eye, of course you want a vaccine. So think about what you just asked me about people with hepatitis A. They go to a restaurant and they eat, and then they find out on the news a week later that that restaurant may have given them hepatitis A. They want the vaccine because that is a clear and present potential threat. Mm. But when you start to see that clear and present threat diminish itself over time, when you start to see that the disease is actually waning, like, for example, things like measles, right. mumps, mumps, right? Yeah. So those diseases were a huge deal 70, 80 years ago, right? I mean, they were pretty much everybody got them. Right. But then as the vaccine made its way into the community and you started seeing less and less of the actual disease, the actual measles or the mumps or the whatever, or the smallpox or whatever the vaccine was for that particular thing, what happened was something interesting took place. It was people took their eye away from the disease and they started paying more attention to the vaccine itself. And they started saying, wait a minute, this disease is no big deal, but mm -hmm. this, this stupid vaccine that I have to take is going to make me feel sick. And the perfect, perfect example of that, and the one, whenever I give lectures about vaccines and, and vaccine hesitancy, the one I always talk about is the vaccine for diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis. Okay. So diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, three old-timey diseases, none of which really are that prevalent anymore. Pertussis, a little bit. We can talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, when, when this, the vaccine first came out, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis were a huge problem. And the vaccine was so good at getting rid of these diseases that they almost completely disappeared from the landscape. But that vaccine was also really bad because it made people super sick. It would give people fevers and shaking chills and they would feel like absolute garbage after taking this vaccine. Yeah. So as time went on, parents and people who were getting this vaccine started saying, wait a minute, what's with this diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine? I'm not even worried about these diseases. These diseases are long gone, but I still got to take this crappy vaccine that makes me feel like garbage. Yeah. So what happened was people started taking the vaccine less and less. And guess what happened? All of a sudden you started seeing upticks. You started seeing an uptick in pertussis. You started seeing an uptick in diphtheria that started to creep in in about the 80s or 90s. And so... We listened, the medical community listened, the people that generate vaccines listened, and they came up with a, a more hospitable vaccine, if you will. We came up with the acellular pertussis, or the, what we call DTAP. Now we have Tdap. So these vaccines were a response to the fact that the old vaccine was so nasty that they came up with this more kinder, gentler vaccine. Well, unfortunately, the kinder, gentler vaccine is not really as good. And we're finding that the, the immunity that this vaccine gives is starting to wane. So you're, you're starting to pick up the newspaper more often and you're starting to see that there's creeping cases of pertussis that are starting to pop up and, 
and it's a problem. This happens to me all the time in the clinic. I've got you know, patients, like I said, who are not vaccinated. And you know what parents say is, I don't want to get my kid to end up with autism or you know, the flu shot, you know, it makes me feel sick. Or even uh, when we talk about like the HPV vaccination for cervical cancer, a lot of my patients say, well, you know, it hasn't really been out for so long. And Mm -hmm. how do you know it's effective? And, um, you know, I struggle with being able to explain this to them. Um, You know, what advice do you have? You know, it's it's a tough one. Uh, I get these questions too. And and I find that you can lock horns and you can get into a debate with people. um, And and it's one of the hardest things it is to do is is to change someone's mind um, when they have so firmly planted themselves on one side of an argument. Let's talk about autism first, because you mentioned a few things. Mm -hmm. So this autism thing um, is is fascinating. Um, This was uh, a study that was published by um, by a physician who is no longer a physician, his, his, his paper has been retracted, where he found a link between the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine and causing autism in, in young children. And when he published this, this paper, when it first came out, this was absolutely earth-shattering landmark stuff. I mean, people were suddenly like, "Of course, holy yeah. smokes, this no vaccine is going to... No one wants to gonna... get their kid autism. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So what happened next was the interesting part. So they started, to, they started to look into this paper a little bit more closely. People tried to sort of repeat these effects. The scientific method was hard at work, and they started to try to, to reproduce these results that Dr. Wakefield had, had, had gotten when he first published his paper. And what they found was that they couldn't do it. They weren't seeing the same kinds of results. So um, in in response to uh, the fact that they couldn't find the same link that Dr. Wakefield found, they started to dig even deeper. And then they found that he had some real nasty conflicts of interest. He was developing uh, a, a vaccine that was going to be a competitor oh, to the geez. measles, mumps, and vaccine geez, that, that he was trying to implicate. So bad science all around. And, and unfortunately, now here's the saddest part of the whole story. The saddest part of the story is that that bell was already rung. You can't unring the bell yeah. once it's already rung. And so to this very day, in spite the the avalanches of good science that have come out and said that there is no link between this vaccine and autism. It's that one lousy paper that was published, you know, 40 years ago that, that tried to, to that tried to implicate this link that is the thing that people still remember the most about that vaccine. You know what I think it's hard is you brought up a good point about, you know, it was a one individual that might have done a poor study and mm-hmm. maybe had um, ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as regular patients, you know, you and I are both patients, we're both doctors. Mm-hmm. What about the trust when it comes to the medical community? Because I think that's the problem is that a lot of patients, they don't know what to trust. And I guess when they're, they're looking up vaccines and what to do, which vaccines to get, you know, do you have a resource that's good for them to look at to see is this beneficial to my child or not? Um, and and how what resources should be trusted? So the, the resource that I use the most when I'm educating physicians, when I'm educating families, when I'm educating uh, medical students, whoever the population is, I always get my information from credible sources like the CDC. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the problem. The CDC, which I think is a wonderful organization, I think that it's, it's done a great job of disseminating excellent news to everybody. The CDC has been a little bit um, 
uh, I guess, catching some flack from a small subpopulation of people who think that they're just shilling. Um, And so, again, that's a tiny, tiny percentage of the population that I really don't want to focus on them. I want to focus on the, the, the people that I can genuinely impact. And, and for those people, the people who I think education matters to them, the CDC is a great resource. Great. Along the lines of frustration. So I remember when I was a resident, um, I got a cold and I was sick for three or four days and I was miserable. I was on call. I was tired. And I kept begging my attending to give me an antibiotic. I said, give me a Z-Pak. I'll feel so much better. And my attending said, nope. Uh, give it a couple days and you will feel fine because most likely it's a virus. Right. So <laughs> fast forward, now I am a physician and I'm practicing and I completely understand the difference between uh, bacterial infections and viral infections, but I still have trouble convincing my patients um, that z are not the answer to everything. And in fact, it can cause antibiotic resistance mm-hmm. if you're taking a z when really it's a viral infection and it has no effect. So this ties back to the, the story that I gave in the beginning about the, 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 the patient that I saw who had been on antibiotic after antibiotic and then eventually developed resistance. I think that when you think about antibiotic resistance globally, um, of course it's a problem. You know, I, I don't think you could find very many people out there that wouldn't admit that antibiotic resistance is a problem. It's just that people will tend to tell themselves, well, it's not a problem when it's me. When I'm the one that needs antibiotics, right. I need my antibiotics. But if you multiply that out over the entire population, then yes, you do start to see this resistance happen. But here's a question. Yeah. So if you are you know, someone like me or a patient, when is it appropriate to go to the doctor You know, after three, four days? you know, Technically, no. We, I usually say if you, it's been persisted for more than 14 days. Right. But how do people know? A lot of people will come in saying, I'm just trying to catch it before it gets worse. Right. Oh, you know, what's your answer to that? That's a tough one because you're right. There's, there's no magic number answer to that question. I think what people need to be told, what I try to educate people, um, whether it's physicians or whether it's patients, I try to educate people that most infections are going to be viral when it's when you're talking about upper respiratory infections, especially this time of year. We're talking probably 80% of infections are going to be viruses. Now, the reason the day, the whole time uh, to present to your doctor thing becomes important is because we know that after a certain number of days, if that infection is still lingering, the likelihood that it's a virus gets less and less and less. So if you're talking seven days, now you've just increased the chances that that could actually be a bacterial infection. Now it's reasonable for you to go to your doctor and talk about getting that prescription, that z that antibiotic, whatever that thing is. And that's reasonable. What's unreasonable is throwing antibiotics at every little cold or, or every little flu that comes in the door because multiply that out over the whole population, you get huge resistance problems. We're already seeing antibiotic resistance in in pockets, we're seeing that Z-Packs basically don't work for the things that they were designed to work for. We're seeing that that penicillin as as an antibiotic is is just gone. I mean, we can hardly use penicillin for anything anymore. So it's, it's a huge problem. So, Nick, it's awesome talking to you. We could go on and on, I know. For sure. Um, and, you know, each one of these topics, I, I think, could be de- a dedicated podcast in itself. Uh, and I appreciate you cutting me off because, as you could probably <laughs> guess, I could talk about this for 100 years if I needed to. But um, if you're listening to our podcast in order, our next conversation is going to be with Dr. Shah Jahan, where she talks about her passion, which is community health. Uh, and that means how does community impact your health? Asha, do you want to give a little teaser for that conversation? Yeah, you know, this is my absolute favorite topic because it's all about, you know, 
how the community you live in impacts your health. And a lot of people don't realize that their surroundings, their zip code really makes a difference uh, to their health. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that um, in that next podcast. And after that, I've got tons of other things that I want to dive into, including uh, an upcoming podcast that I'm going to do with, uh, with a sports medicine physician. We're going to talk about orthopedics and sports medicine. And then along the way, I'll also try to tackle some other things that are of interest to me, things like health benefits of meditation and mindfulness, Ooh, which I like that one. I'm very interested in that too. We'll talk about diabetes, uh, cancer screening, so on, so on. Yeah. And, you know, there is a new treatment for cancer uh, that I would like to talk about, which is the proton technology. So we'll talk about that. And I have one more coming up, the loneliness epidemic. So, you know, that affects more people than you think. So you never know that could be impacting you or someone you love. So stay tuned. We also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. In a future podcast, we'll answer our mailbag. And today we'll leave you with this healthy thought. Since we're talking about infectious disease today, I guess this is a good opportunity for me to say, do everything you can to protect yourself from getting infections, like get vaccinated, make sure you wash your hands regularly, and make sure you avoid any unnecessary antibiotics, especially if what you have is not a bacterial infection. But if you do get a nasty infection, then infectious disease doctors are here to help.